Brother Chad alluded to today, please don't forget your Christmas for Christ offering. We'll be sending that out next week. So uh, if you want to jump online, because I want to give my best gift to Jesus Christ, especially since we're celebrating really his, his birth date, right? And so we're supposed to be celebrating right now. And so I want to go to the book of Luke chapter 2. I think we already read this. I wish, did you bring the beard? I mean, because I could have had you. No, okay. All right, all right. So um, that was good. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea and David's ancient home. And so he traveled there from the village of uh, Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. And uh, thank God Joseph got to see the baby in person and didn't have to use Zoom. Sounds like a tough weekend. You know, you read that and you're just like, man, that's tough. That's rough. Okay, interesting. But it was a lot more than just a tough weekend. It was uh, interesting because I look at the culture and I studied the culture of that day and I looked at what our culture is today and it's, it's amazing some of the parallels between first century culture and 21st century culture. Now, you wouldn't anticipate that. You know, you're like, well, they didn't deal with technology. They didn't have Zoom. That's why it was so funny when we watched that. And, and they, didn't, they didn't deal with some of the things that we deal with. And, but yet, humanity sometimes changes and sometimes we don't. And this morning, for just a little while, I want to preach on this topic. A lesson learned from those who missed the first coming. A lesson learned from those who missed the first coming. Now, if anyone here misses anyone that you usually see on these pews, raise your hand if someone's not here that you miss seeing today. Hey, a live stream, if you, if you are, I don't know if you can see the audience, but there's all kinds of hands that are up in the air right now that we miss you, Okay. But now, I want to give you a word of encouragement. They're coming back. Some of you look depressed and discouraged today. Can we just say amen? amen? If you're happy to be in the house of the Lord one more time, stand to your feet and just give God a clap, hand clap of praise. Okay? No sleeping on Sunday morning on Christmas, what we're celebrating. God is great and greatly to be praised. We're going to get together again soon with the, every person that's a part of the body of Christ. We're going to have new people in 2021. Next year at this time, there's going to be people sitting in chairs next to you that, you that they are not here yet. You don't even know their name yet because God has a great plan for 2021. Amen. All right. Now that the energy level's higher, you may be seated. We can continue on with this message. I don't need your amens to continue, but I at least want the energy level higher. And we didn't even sing Silent Night. My wife said, we might sing Silent Night tonight. So I'm going to jump up there before you do, because otherwise they'll be, they might be. It's just a little too slow to walk into. 
A lesson from those who missed the first coming. It was a cold Mediterranean night more than 2,000 years ago. Joseph and a pregnant Mary were trudging through rough terrain on donkey and foot. And if you have ever been to Israel, I don't, well, yeah, well, we have, we've been there, me and Chad. I don't know if you guys have ever known that, but we got a chance to go. If you're a guest, it's an inside joke, just. But they were making the 100-mile trip to Beth from Nazareth to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. And, and it's not like it was just a lush park. You know, you're walking through Central Park. No, it was, it's rocky, rough terrain. They'd hidden hewn out streets yet. This would be the equivalent of us leaving today and saying, you know what? Let's just all travel on foot today. And we're going to head to the outskirts of Columbia, Missouri. How many of you ladies have ever been pregnant before? Got a few of you? How does the idea appeal to you to walk pregnant from, from now, from here to, to, to Columbia? I've never been pregnant, and I'm thankful for that. But my understanding is, you know, your ankles can swell and your feet can swell. It's not a comfortable process. So the thought of walking from here to Columbia may not really be that appealing. Had it been a voluntary trip, the couple might have chosen to travel in the dry season. But they had no choice because, according to Luke's gospel account, they were traveling to Bethlehem for tax reasons. Now imagine being pregnant, walking from here to Columbia, and you're doing it for a census regarding you paying taxes. I would imagine Mary probably either wanted to hit Joseph or any other person that was in sight by the time she got to Bethlehem. Far away in Rome, the, the emperor, Caesar Augustus, had demanded a census be taken of all his conquered lands. So he might know that, hey, what, am I, what can I expect? What kind of taxes are we going to be getting this year? In those days, taxes were paid in crops and animals. Mary and Joseph, New Testament scholars say, lived in an oppressive society. They were heavily taxed by local and faraway leaders who demanded as much as 50 to 60% of what the common person grew and owned. It's possible that Joseph, he might have been farming there in Bethlehem, but he couldn't make it. It's, it's possible. He may have left Bethlehem because of debt, thus going about 100 miles away to find work. Jesus Christ was born and lived in an atmosphere of upheaval, chaos, and social discontent. And I say, man, that's just, that sounds just a little familiar. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king and ruled Judea, Samaria, and Galilee as a police state. Herod was appointed by Rome to run a huge kingdom of Jews. A tense and often confrontational relationship existed between the farmers and the fishermen and the townspeople of Galilee and Herod, the Roman officials, and the urban uh, uh, aristocrats who held the wealth and the power. Herod was brutal. Jesus was born into essentially a third world context under a military dictatorship. It was a society where everyone was coerced. 
About 10% of the population was born into nobility, and they lived lavishly. The other 90% worked the fields around Nazareth, growing grapes and olives and grain. And they would work hard to give 50 to 60% of what they gathered to someone who was already rich enough that they didn't need it. That's the context you have to understand. And those coming from Nazareth, they were not well received or respected. One scripture says when Jesus starts calling his disciples, you read in John 1, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him who Moses and the law of the prophets wrote about and Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And the first thing Nathanael says is what? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? It sounds like prejudice. It sounds like just, just a poor attitude. While the rich prospered, the peasants suffered. And their hatred for Herod and the Romans grew. And you can kind of imagine why. Mary's pregnant. Well, she didn't walk. She rode a donkey. That's better. Pregnant. Trying to get up on a donkey, 100 miles. I mean, any, anybody that's experienced pregnancy want to ride a donkey from here to Columbia? All because, Mary, we have to do this because I know you're uncomfortable, but Herod demands this because you know everything I've been working for, half of that's been set aside. It's got to go to him. Jesus was born in this society, and the Jews hated Herod because he had a, a reputation as a murderer and a thug. And the whole concept of civil rights, it didn't exist. Jesus was born into a society without equality. And so he experienced what it felt like to be treated poorly based on race, culture, economic background. No longer did the Jews live in Babylonian exile. Woo, they're, they're, they're back home. But now they were, they were as slaves in their own homeland. Almost like exiles in their own country. Even their own temple was built by a foreigner, King Herod. And he just did it, most likely because he wanted to gain a little bit of camaraderie with them because it was a political ploy and also because he was such a great builder that everything he built, it pointed back to him. And so the nation, political darkness reigned and the nation of Israel as a whole, it seemed in absolute shambles. Four groups of people sought to lead Israelites at that time. You see on the slide, it says one was the Pharisees. They resided in Jerusalem. They attempted to shape religious life in Israel through their traditions. Jesus had many run-ins with these legalistic Jews who led, people, led the people of God astray. They tried to. Then you had the Sadducees who opposed the strict legalism of the Pharisees and only embraced the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first Genesis to Deuteronomy. They rejected the resurrection. They rejected belief in angels, but they still had an influential place in the, in the temple and the law and the courts. Then you had the Essenes who lived in a community near Qumran where, where the scribes who penned and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls lived. They found Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves. Have you been there? Okay. The Zealots were a band of brothers who did not see that the Essenes, though, go back. They, they devoted themselves to God and they prayed for the overthrow of Rome. 
Then the zealots were a band of brothers who did not pray for change. So as much as the violent means, they wanted to just overthrow Roman rule. Simon, who ends up getting called by Jesus, is a zealot. And they were ones that were like, we don't need to take this. Let's, let's, let's get some people together and we'll take them down. So two of the groups, the first two groups, seemed consumed with religious tradition. And the second two groups were consumed with social justice. Both seem admirable. I mean, if we said, hey, are you for religious traditions? I think most of us would say, yeah. Are you for social justice? I would hope most of us would say, absolutely. Both seemed like worthy endeavors, but both issues got to the point where they were consuming them. These earthly issues were consuming them. There was absolute division in society, even in their own city. Everyone seemed divided. You could walk through the city. Oh, they're, oh they're, the Essenes, they live outside the city. And then you got the Pharisees over here, and you got the Sadducees over here. And you got all these different people and the zealots. Well, uh, careful, they might be a zealot. And so everywhere you walked, there were sects of people who all believed did different things, and they held things near and dear, and they were consumed with their belief. Division everywhere. The result is these four competing sects in Judaism led to constant friction, and it only increased by the oppression of Rome. Riots were common. Tension was unceasing. And this just sounds a little bit familiar to me. I keep saying, you just jump on social media, you'll find you don't have to be long. You don't have to be smart. You just jump on, and you see people have opinions. Have a conversation today in this congregation with people who believe a lot of the same things you do. And you'll find people here have opinions. And so, can we have an opinion? Of course. Thank God for a free country where we can express our opinions and thoughts on things. I sometimes need to remember that when someone voices a very strong opinion that's opposite of mine, I can step back and say, well, thank God that we're in a country where someone can still express themselves even if it's different than what I feel. Because I don't ever want to take that from someone else because guess what? That's freedom of speech. That's what I, I want to have for myself. But darkness was everywhere at Christ's birth, and this probably should not come as a surprise when we look back and we think about Old Testament prophetic scriptures and words. Look at the passage in Psalms that Jesus later quotes in the New Testament. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone, the, the chief cornerstone. Jesus knew the Old Testament, the Torah, and he knew that rejection was prophesied. Isaiah talks about it in 28, uh, Isaiah 28, 11, for with stammering lips and another tongue, speaking in, God's going to pour out his spirit and the evidence is going to be speaking in tongues. With stammering lips and another tongue, he's going to speak to his people. And we say, "Woo! praise God, that's a prophetic word about the Holy Ghost. But read on, verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you, you may cause the weary to rest and this is the refreshing yet, yet they would not hear. There was a prophetic word about what was coming and what was on the horizon, but it wasn't just the outpouring of the Spirit on the horizon. It wasn't just speaking in tongues, stammering lips on the horizon. It was the fact that, hey, guess what's around the corner? There is also going to be a rejection where people will not receive the prophetic word. 
And so, sure enough, God manifests himself in flesh. He steps into this dark time that I just kind of painted this picture where he wanted to be the light of the world. He wanted to be the deliverer, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, and they completely missed it. They missed the plan so much that when John writes in John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made by him. Notice it does not say the Father and then the Son and the Holy Spirit. He was not talking about a triune, co-equal, co-eternal God. He says he, meaning Jesus, was in the world and the world was made by Jesus. Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. And he says and the world knew him not. How is that possible? He's walking in this world. He's here. How does the world not know him? Verse 11 says, he came unto his own. That's talking about the Jewish people, the Israelites. He came to his own, and his own received him not. God literally says, I made the world, but you know what? There's sin in the world. I'm going to take on flesh, and I'm going to go dwell among them, and I'm going to start with my own people, my own homeland. But he goes to them, and he faces rejection from his own family. Some of the reasons that believers in the first century missed his coming, why they never knew him, why they would not receive him, I think it has to do with two major things. Number one, they figured that, you know, Jesus, I was looking for a Jesus that would meet my expectations. I was looking for a Jesus that when I call him and I wanted something, that he'd provide that. In my head, it made sense, so my Jesus should look like this. And the second reason they missed it and they wouldn't receive him is because they were consumed with what was going on around them. They were consumed with the issues of that day. They were so focused on the political climate of that day. They were so consumed with questions regarding taxes and Rome and how they should respond to them. Even, even the religious leaders, they tried to trap Jesus because they viewed his, him as a threat. And so they asked these questions. Matthew 22 records it. It's actually recorded in several of the Gospels. But it says in verse 15, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in this talk. And they said unto him, their disciples, with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? I'm going to translate that for you to 21st century. It just means, what do you think? I just want to have fun. Like, from now to the moment you leave today, just only converse with each other in King James English. What doest thou for Christmas? Behold, my family and I, they bid me come. This is here doing very well. Thinkest thou, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Man, that's a tough question because if Jesus right now goes, yes, you got to pay tribute to Caesar, guess what? There's only 10% of people who are aristocrats, 90% who are peasants. Guess who Jesus just lost some influence with? 
90% of people. Because no one wants to hear when you just travel on a donkey pregnant to Bethlehem and you got there and everything's aching and you only show up to just pay your taxes. No one wants to hear, oh yes, I think it's a great idea to pay taxes to Herod. That would cut him off from his influence in 90% of the people. But if he says, no, man, Herod, that old clown, that guy's rich. He don't need our money. 90% of people in a minute, woo! But he would have been viewed as a zealot, as someone who's trying to overthrow Rome. And so he perceived their wickedness. And why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. They brought into him a penny. He saith unto him, whose inscription is here? They said, well, that's Caesar's. And he said, well, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when he said that word, they marveled because he just got them. He just said, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's, and he was out of there. Jesus wasn't really there to take on earthly battles. His mission was not to become a politician or to join a political party. That's why he said, give to God's what God's, give to Caesar what Caesar. After Jesus performs the great miracle of multiplying the loaves, five loaves, two fish, multiplies it into thousands, feed thousands and thousands of people. Look what transpires in John 6. Therefore, they gathered them together, filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over what they had ate. And then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, a prophet that came into the world. And when Jesus perceived, verse 15, check this out, that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain place to be alone. Now, I know for some of us, if we were like, man, people said, you're amazing, the things that you're doing, we want to elevate you into a place of earthly authority. We'd be like... How much is pay? <laughs> what kind of influence do I have? Um, well, give me, I'm going to need more details than this. Let me pray about it. Jesus just looks and he says, I need to get out of here because these people are so consumed with earthly things that they're missing the entire lesson and I got to get away and get out of this place Notice something here. They were ready to make Jesus the king of their earthly things. But they were not willing to make Jesus the king of their eternal things. I want to make him a king of everything in this earth because we're sick and tired of what we got going on. And if this guy can do that with Five loaves and two fish. What could he do with money? And man, we could, wow, we could be free from Roman oppression. And that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to talk about eternity. Yeah, 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 I know. But let's talk about now. We got to make you our king. And when believers only came to Jesus with a desire, with a need, and saying, I want earthly things and earthly power and deliver me from earthly issues. And they were not, they had, did not have any interest in eternal things. It's one of the few times where we see Jesus cut 
off communication with human beings. Only time that I really see things like this. He cuts off communication with human beings and leaves them and walks and gets out of that place. Why? When they were consumed with earthly things and not focused on eternal. So we can learn a lesson from those who missed his first coming. Don't just turn to Jesus when you have earthly questions and earthly problems and earthly issues. Oh, God, I need help paying my rent this month. Oh, God, I need a better job. God, I'm sick and tired of what's going on. God, I need help in my marriage. God, I need some issues. God, help me. I, want, I feel a call on my life. God, God, I just want to, I, I want more of me. I want, Lord, help my retirement account, Lord. My car has been broken down. And we just pray about these things. Lord, help, help the person who got elected, who didn't get elected. My political party. Lord, help me. Help out. And we're just so consumed with this stuff. God, where are you? Help us with COVID. I'm sick of this. Why do you keep letting this happen? And we get to the point where we're so consumed with temporary things. And God shows up. Was he there that day to, to try and minister to these people? There is no doubt in my mind. It was not God's will to hide out, to sneak out away from people and go to be alone when he was there to minister. But God was unable to minister. Jesus Christ could not minister that day because the people were so consumed with the earthly and they were not interested in the eternal. So he said, I, I, gotta, I gotta get out of here. They had an expectation about who God would be, when a savior would arrive, what would that savior look like, when would he show up, and how we would free them from their political situation. Jesus steps on the scene, nothing like what they expected. And if we're honest, nothing like what they wanted. If somebody walks with you, you turn the other cheek. They sue you for this. You give them your coat too. No, no, no. I was wanting like Sylvester Stallone, you know. I was wanting some big warrior. I was wanting a guy with a sword. I was wanting a gladiator. I was wanting someone to step on the scene and, and just be like, Rome. Your time is up. And we just get behind him and walk into the city and claim Jerusalem back and make him our king and we rule on earth. I just had a thought. Could it be that when you get to the end times, the devil and the false prophet are bound for a thousand years and we reign for him in the thousand year millennium. I never got this. I never understood this. How in the world does the devil get released and find millions of people willing to serve him again? When you just, knew, when you just saw and it was handed down, what just happened? Battle of Armageddon and this, these, these, and, 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 and now you're, you're sitting here reigning for a thousand year millennium. Why in the world do people who rule with Jesus and he just literally calls down fire and just takes down the enemies? And, and why are millions of people as the sand of the seashore, the Bible says, willing to follow the devil again after he's released? Could it be that when he sets up his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, that was all that they wanted? Could it be that, man, we get to rule and reign on earth. This is often the lion lays next to the lamb. This is a beautiful situation. The devil gets released and we're like, wow, 
there's an enemy again, so mean we're not going to rule on earth. And, and, I, and I lost my vision of eternal things because I was so consumed with what was happening on earth. And you look at this. He wasn't what they wanted. And so many people missed his miracles and his message because they were consumed with the wrong things. And when we get consumed with earthly things instead of eternal things, God walks away from us. When all I care about is this, even when it's admirable, when all I get consumed about is my earth and my problem and my issues and my family and my things and my stuff and my future, you look in Mark chapter 6, Jesus left the part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. I mean, wouldn't you, you would think they'd be going, whoa, like Palm Sunday all over again except for in the Nazareth. It's a party. Jesus is coming back home. He, it, it's been noised abroad. Miracles were being done everywhere. He's going back home. You would think they'd be having streamers and like, he's home. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did he get all this wisdom? Power to perform these miracles? And they scoffed. He's just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. Son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, they, these guys live here. We know him. His sisters live right among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown among his relatives and his family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles except place his hands on a few sick people. Leave that one up. Do you think that that was the the whole of what Jesus intended to do when he came to Nazareth. Mark really paints a picture here, doesn't he? All he could do is this. He was not celebrating what Jesus did. He said Jesus did a couple things. He, he, it wasn't his lack of power. But Mark paints a picture. He went home. No doubt he was going to keep doing what he had done everywhere else in every surrounding community and city that he traveled. But he went home, and the people at home said, I know you. This is, this is, our, this is just our, this is a carpenter. He's a carpenter. He's Mary and Joseph, and we know his brothers and sisters. And they looked around at all of his, his, his trade and what his dad did and what his brothers and sisters do, and they said, yeah, he ain't going to tell us anything. And Jesus left his home where he could have done so much because people, they knew him and his family, and they just, eh. Their expectations were pretty low. Because why? Because there were things they wanted him to do and accomplish in this earth, and he just, yeah, this is just Jesus. He's just a carpenter. People that day, they were... They were consumed with the Romans. And, and notice verse 6, it says he was amazed at their unbelief. I want to live a life that amazes Jesus. 
But does your life amaze Jesus? I think Peter amazed Jesus at times. The guy was a little nuts at times. But I, I almost feel like Jesus sometimes was like, you know, let me jump and walk on the water. Jesus like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, all right. I mean, like he sees Jesus coming, he just, after the resurrection, he just jumps in the water and starts swimming to Jesus. Like everything he did, he did to the fullest extent. But then there are other people who amazed Jesus with a lack of faith. I want to amaze Jesus with the faith that I carry, with the trust and the confidence that I have in him. Not, that first century, they were consumed with Romans. They were consumed with politics, consumed with their rights, consumed with their financial state, consumed with tradition, consumed with a preconceived notion about what they thought the Savior should be. But even at the end of his earthly ministry, he's still trying to convince everyone, I'm not here to be an earthly king. Certainly, I control all this. But look at John 18. Pilate goes back to his headquarters, brings Jesus. He says, are you the king of the Jews? That was always the issue. That was, he, he, that was what he was always facing. That's where you enter in that father language. Who's your dad? Where do you come from? Trinitarians will try to say that's a co-equal, co-eternal God. See, you have a pre-existent son, all that. That is not why that's there. That was father, because back then, everyone was consumed with, who are you? Who's your dad? Where do you come from? What's your lineage? Were you trained as a rabbi? So a lot of that father language, just trying to understand and trying to put him in this box. And Jesus had to keep saying, you don't know me. If you don't know me, you don't know my father. I am, I am in him, and he's in me. I am the father I one. That's why he says these things. But are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is this your question? Or somebody else ask you about it. Am I a Jew, Pilate retorts? Your own people, your leading priests, brought you to me for trial. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. And if we're Christ-like followers, we're filled with his spirit, then your kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would have came and fought for me. In other words, he had the power. He could have called down angels. He had all authority. But he says, my, my focus, my kingdom, it isn't here. My focus in my kingdom is in another place. It's in another world. And here we are celebrating his birth more than 2,000 years later. And believers today are still getting consumed with earthly things that do not matter. And we sometimes forget that God's plan was never focused more on earth than it was on eternity. In a season where we once again celebrate the fact that our Savior came, let us not make the mistakes, the same mistakes that they made in the first century. The ones that we read about and we go, man, a bunch of knuckleheads. What in the world? How they miss that? The angels are singing a song and Gabriel shows up. A virgin gives birth like we think that's a great thing. That wasn't a celebrated thing. You're a virgin giving birth. You're going to be stoned in that day. 
virgin giving birth and an angelic chorus singing and Jesus showing up and virgin birth and giving miracles and doing this. I mean, like, wow, how did they miss that? I mean, it was the, 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 it was the fulfillment of prophecy. They had the Old Testament. My goodness, why didn't they read it? He fits the descriptions. He quotes from the Old Testament. He says, this day the prophet is fulfilled. And, and, and he slams the book shut. I mean, why, how did they miss it? The Bible told them all about it. We say, how horrible. I mean, I don't get it. But then here we sit. About 2,000 years after the fact. We have scriptures. That talk about the signs of his coming. And say, lift your head. When you see these things, redemption draweth nigh. He says, he says, uh. Don't listen to the scoffers. Oh, where's the promise, Second Peter? Where's the promise of his coming? Since the father fell asleep, we've been hearing that same thing. God's coming back. God's coming back. God's coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are now living in that day. Right now, where we are now, we have people in our community and even in, our, even in ourselves, some of us, even we're, 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 we're so consumed with what is going on in society that if we're not careful, just as they missed the first coming, we become in danger of missing the second coming. Because the stage was set it was set then. They needed a savior. Society, it was dark. They needed, they needed a savior. But the savior didn't step in at the time they thought and do the things that they thought he would do. And how many of us have spoken to someone or maybe ourselves said, I just don't know why God would allow this. Why is he letting COVID hit? Why are people dying? Why is, and we're, we're, we have this expectation for a savior to fix things on this earth. And what if God has zero intention of fixing anything on this earth? Were they ready for the Savior to be born in the first century? We see the answer. But are you ready for the Savior to come the second time. As Christians, are we so busy watching news and discussing elections and wondering where God is and what his plan is and stressing over personal rights and what's wrong in society and discussing the pestilences that are in this earth that Jesus told us was going to be present before his second coming. He says there will be signs of earthquakes how many earthquake tremors just took place in Kansas yesterday? Look at the news. There are signs everywhere that pointed to a virgin birth. And they missed it. And there are signs everywhere that point to a second coming. And I don't want to miss it. What if God has no plans to change What's going on here? If we are as passionate 
about eternal things as temporal things, we will be more prepared for eternity than ever before. I don't want to be a hypocrite today. I don't want to get so judgmental about how the ridiculous believers of the first century were to miss the first coming. And then I sit around complaining about current situations and I miss the second. And so folks, I close with this today as you stand to your feet. Please hear me right now. Jesus Christ is trying very hard to prepare his people. You look at the Old Testament prophecies, and I wish I had time. We could do a whole series just on Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. You have just lists, lists of Old Testament prophecies about this virgin birth, about where he was going to be born, about what was going to be transpiring, about the family, about, I mean, there is so many. Isaiah is jam-packed with them. It, the, the, so many of these, of these Old Testament books, they just talk about this Savior and what was going to happen, and then it happens. It happens. I mean, even when he says, you're going to find a colt and go grab that, I mean, like, all this was prophesied. And part of the reason they missed it was because they didn't know the Old Testament. Be here Wednesday night. One of the most powerful messages. God has given me a word. And it's entitled, The Word Became Flesh. The Word Became Flesh. Because I don't know how many of them, they would have never been prepared for the first coming because... Well, what about all the prophecies? They didn't know them because they didn't study them. But God wanted so bad to make his people aware, I'm coming. A Savior's coming. There's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. Even prophecy, prophecies about John before him. But then I'm going to come and a Savior's going to be born. Don't miss it. Even Bethlehem was prophesied about. And here we are. Preachers all over the world are getting up in pulpits today. And yeah, they're even using Zoom calls in a lot of areas. And they're telling believers, Jesus Christ is coming back. Already my kids at 12, 9, and 5 have probably heard that so many times that if we're not careful, we have to guard ourselves because it just, Jesus come back, God's come back, God's come back soon, Jesus come back for his church, that we just go, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. And, and right before our eyes, we see the prophecy starting to come to fruition about where's the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep. We've been hearing this forever. Don't lose your excitement to be joined up once again with your Savior. Because the signs are in place. And who would have thought that that night in Bethlehem in a stable where there was a star and wise men and there was an angelic host that appeared to the shepherds and all that. Who would have thought that that was the night? Who would have thought that the trumpet would sound on 
Sunday, December 20th, 2020. Well, hang on, I got plans. I'm going here, I got the holidays coming up and I, I still wanted to get make sure I finish, finish my shopping and we need to pray for the political situation. We got this person, I wanted this person to win. I'm glad this person won and, uh, and I'm just, and then I gotta go to work and then we got COVID, COVID's messed and everything and I'm just so stressed. Now, hold it. What if December 20th is the day? All of a sudden my Christmas shopping and my plans and COVID and nothing, nothing else matters when the trumpet sounds there's not another thing that matters in my life and so church learn a lesson from the first century they missed the first coming because they were consumed with the wrong things let's not miss the second because we're consumed with the wrong things Let's find a place right now to just go before our Lord and Savior and say, God, help me to be ready. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus, to be ready. God, I know you're coming back soon. I don't know if it's today, tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, but your word commanded us to be ready, to make sure there was oil in the lamp to be prepared to meet the bridegroom. Lord, God, help me, Jesus, to be ready. Lord, help me to learn from the mistakes of some of these people in the first century. Yeah, I'm going to be the best person I can be here on earth, and I'm going to try and minister and reach as many people. You told me to be the salt of the earth and light of the world and shine your light, God. I want to be that, but God, help me in all that I'm doing to not get consumed with the things of this earth. God, help me to be consumed with you. Where's the promise of his coming, the scoffer said. Hey, I don't know when and where. No man knows the day or the hour, but I'll tell you what. I'm more excited today than I've ever been before. I'm not going to let the things of this world consume me because this is not my home. God, I look forward. My eyes are up. I can't wait to see the eastern skies split open and see my Savior face to face. And all the things that I was worried about, they take a back seat because they no longer matter. No more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more sickness. God, help me to be ready. Turn.